You're listening to Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about what can be possible in our lives. And now, here's the host of the show, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the show today. It's going to be fascinating as we talk about reincarnation. And just in case you didn't know, I'm an immigrant. Before I met my husband, I had never been to a sporting function before. My parents didn't believe in paying money for entertainment like a live game. I never played sports growing up. I played the flute with my thick eyeglasses before thinning the lenses became a thing. And lenses were so heavy back then if your eyesight was not optimal. I attended my first basketball game with my husband, then boyfriend and his family, to watch the Celtics play at home. When I got back on the bus to return to Wellesley that night, I woke up with my eyelids glued together because I had contracted pink eye from touching all that shit in the stadium. On one of our first dates, he carried a radio in his hand so that he could listen to the Red Sox game as we were visiting one of the mansions in Newport, Rhode Island. Apparently, it was a very important game. I've gone to so many Red Sox games to support my husband's love of every sport Boston. And I'm not sure if he knows this, but I've dozed off at so many games at the stadium. I could never really pay attention or follow the game, so I became the Asian sleeping at Fenway. My point is, after all those years of watching the games, I never learned anything. That is, until my son started to play baseball. I feel that this is the year that baseball has become serious for us. Last year, he had one game in his season due to the pandemic. I've improved a little watching the games this year as I've come to understand some of the basic rules and concepts. I now understand the difference between a ball and a strike. Or this one, if the pitcher catches the ball after it's been hit by the hitter, but before it touches the ground, the hitter is out. Yup, what did I say? Basic shit. I'm learning basics. But something about youth sports that has really surprised me is how emotional it can be. The games are such that they go on for six innings now, and sometimes the kids are so invested, they cry when they lose. Like real tears. I can understand the disappointment. But what I've seen my son do surprises me even more. He can be really angry or upset after a game, but when that game is over, he'll start talking with the other children, even if they're from the opposing team. And what they always end up doing is start playing again. They'll start throwing the ball again for another half an hour to hour, and it becomes therapeutic for him and perhaps for all of them. It helps him to feel better as he works out some of those emotions just by doing what he loves. It's really interesting to me. You can be really disappointed by how things go, and it could be something you love to do. And what do you do to feel better? You continue to do what you love. That's one of the cures for when you're feeling badly. You can be upset at the outcome, but you shouldn't underestimate what you love because it can make you feel better. Anyway, these were some of the goings on in my life. A lot of time getting dusty watching my kids play. And on to today's show. The first book in spirituality I ever read was Dr. Brian Weiss's book, Many Lives, Many Masters. 
I had heard about it on the podcast I was listening to, driving to and from the hospital in Silicon Valley. And I was so shocked by this book, I read it in half a day. It freaked me out so much that I couldn't sleep for two weeks. My thinking changed, and my questions about life are different now. His book was the beginning of my own path and my wondering. I started to wonder if life could be more than what we thought it was. Dr. Brian Weiss is a psychiatrist, a medical doctor who also practices psychotherapy. And in his book, he writes about one of his patients, who is a young woman who suffers from many fears and anxieties, which have escalated to the point where she can't even leave her house. And as he works with her, he is shocked and initially skeptical when she starts recalling past life traumas that she still carries, which have also impacted her current life. This patient then starts to channel messages from the space between lives and relays specific information for him and knowledge for life in general. A couple of episodes ago, I had mentioned that I generally like to read books by medical doctors because I know that we are a cynical bunch. We're even formally trained not to believe if there's no evidence. And I know that when we believe, it has to be that profound to shift the paradigm of our lives and work, because those foundations are strong. Working with this one patient forever changed the life of Dr. Weiss, and his book is about reincarnation and past life regression, as he also brings up the idea of the survival of the soul after death. In the example of his patient, he brings up the possibility that we can carry certain emotions and fears from our past lives into our current lives. Same soul, different bodies, well, it can make it hella complicated. And maybe that's what life is, really complicated. And as I interviewed Dr. Tucker today about his work in reincarnation, I find his book, Life Before Life, very interesting because he is also a medical doctor evaluating the scientific evidence for or against reincarnation. And as he evaluates the evidence, we can't help but also wonder, what happens after death? Is it possible for a consciousness to survive physical death? He starts his book with the line, some young children say that they have been here before. The children in his work provide so much information about their past lives that they're able to actually find the identity of the prior life and confirm the details with those who are still living. It's that specific and uncanny. One of the children that was mentioned in this interview and who had participated in Dr. Tucker's studies is the story of James Leininger. His parents wrote the book Soul Survivor because when he was just around two years old, he began having horrible nightmares and was screaming sentences in his sleep, talking about a plane on fire, providing such specific details of planes and war tragedies which a young child generally does not know. And after so many instances, his parents started listening and they began their journey of piecing together the information that their child was providing, such that they were able to locate and find the prior life. It's seriously an incredible story. And by the way, this totally contributed to my temporary non-sleep as I began my spiritual journey. Reading and learning of what exists 
and yet freaked out at the same time. And on today's show, I'm honored to have the chance to speak with Dr. Tucker. He is a psychiatrist and a professor of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia, and is the director of the UVA Division of Perceptual Studies, where he continues the work of Dr. Ian Stevenson with children who report memories of previous lives. He is the author of Life Before Life and his New York Times bestseller, Return to Life. Welcome to Lost or Found, Dr. Tucker. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. And, you know, before we begin, can you tell us about yourself? Um, Sure. So I'm a child psychiatrist, and uh, I have been at the University of Virginia for the last 20 years, um, doing both clinical work as well as research, uh, particularly on children who report memories of past lives. Wonderful. And I was really fascinated by your book, Life Before Life, and you've also written Return to Life as well. You know, um, as you talk about reincarnation today in your research, how did you get interested in this topic? Well, I certainly didn't have any interest uh, growing up um, from a Christian background. And um, when I went through my training in psychiatry and child psychiatry, it was completely mainstream. I, I did my training at the University of Virginia, where Ian Stevenson had previously been chair of the department, and he had started this work on, on children's past life memories. Um, I heard about him. I never met him. He wasn't really an active part of the department. And then after training, I went into private practice. Um, and I started, when my wife and I got together, I got um, intrigued by a lot of things. She, she was open to the idea of reincarnation. And I picked up one of Dr. Stevenson's books and um, started reading it. And then we saw in the local newspaper that his research division had gotten a grant to do a new study on near-death experiences. So not feeling completely fulfilled in private practice, I... Um, called them up to see if they needed help interviewing patients for the study. And kind of one thing led to another. Started out doing just sort of volunteer uh, work an hour or two a week. Um, So it wasn't particularly reincarnation that drew me into this work. It was was more the idea of sort of serious-minded scientific approach to the question of survival of consciousness after death. And uh, Dr. Stevenson was getting up in years at that point and, and was looking for somebody to carry on the work. So, so that's how I ended up focusing on past life memories. It's fascinating. And, you know, the research at UVA in the Division of Perceptual um, Studies has been going on for a while, like it seems like since the 1970s, right? Uh, even before, yeah. He took mm-hmm. his, uh, Ian took his first trip in 1961 wow. uh, to study cases. So, yeah, we've now been doing it for 60 years. How many cases have you have you guys looked at as department? Um, over 2,500. Wow. Um, and actually even more than that, but those are the ones that we, that there's enough where we have registered them as cases uh, mm-hmm. from all over the world. And um, Ian focused mostly on cases in Asia, uh, or at least places with a belief in reincarnation, because that's where you could hear about cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now with the internet, American parents find us all the time uh, so, so I focus on American cases. 
So they contact you directly now yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. Fascinating. Yep. Yeah. And I was really fascinated by your book, um, Life Before Life, because some of the details these little children state, mm. you know, it seems like it could be really disturbing to remember. But you talk about, you know, birthmarks as a possible link to the past. Can you explain? Yes. Yeah, so there are a number of cases where the children are born with birthmarks or full birth defects that match wounds, usually the fatal wounds, on the body of the previous person, the, the person uh, whose life the child seems to be remembering. And uh, many of the, whether they're birthmarks or not, m most of the children uh, re are recalling a, a life that ended by some sort of unnatural means, murder, accident, uh, suicide, combat, that sort of thing. So a lot of traumatic mm -hmm. deaths. And then uh, some of these kids will have these birthmarks or birth defects that are found to match uh, the precise wounds that the previous person had. So, for instance, um, so Ian Stevenson was always interested in psychosomatic medicine, so the link between mind and body. Uh, so these cases he really was fascinated by and spent years studying them. Anyway, he listed... 18 cases where the children were born with two birthmarks, ones that matched both the entrance wound and the exit wound mm -hmm. on, on the body of a gunshot victim. Um, and there are others that include uh, uh, deformed uh, fingers or missing limbs. I mean, there are all kinds of uh, pretty dramatic uh, defects that, again, that match with the wounds uh, from the previous person. Interesting. And, you know, what percentage of children who remember past lives, like, you know, had a violent death in that previous life then that they? Um, 70 percent. Wow. Some sort of unnatural means. Some of that would include mm -hmm. things like drowning, you know, which is not exactly violent, but but um, it's, it's a sort of a sudden traumatic end. Mm. You know, why do you think these children remember? Well, that's a good question. and And it may well be that traumatic memories um, stick with them longer. Uh, that, you know, just like in this life, when people have PTSD, uh, they have memories that they wish they could get rid of, mm -hmm. but that are strong enough where they carry over uh, through a, a whole lifetime. Well, in, in our cases, if, if you consider the idea that consciousness may have continued on from a previous life, then it kind of makes sense that the traumatic memories uh, would be prominent, and it, it may well, be, I mean, we have plenty of cases of natural death, but it may be that having those traumatic memories makes it more likely that not only would those memories carry over, but that then would lead the child to have other associated memories and, and remember more about that past life beyond just how the person mm -hmm. died. It kind of like the idea, like, you know, if there is like trauma and it happens at the end, it's like, it's hard to shrug it off the consciousness if they yeah. weren't even able to deal with it in that life since they died. Well, that's right. And of course, there's not, not things that are much more traumatic mm -hmm. than being killed or having some sort of grisly death. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of makes sense that those would carry over. Mm -hmm. I mean, what we don't really know is whether people who don't have that sort of death and don't have the past life memories, whether they come back, you know, whether we all come back, or if it's just that with 
that kind of death that the process gets short-circuited. So, you know, if you're open to the idea that consciousness continues, um, it could continue in a lot of different ways. And, and it could be that most individuals then go on to have a completely different kind of existence. Um, but for some, they're kind of tethered here to this reality and, and then they come back here. Um, so we don't know. I, I think either way is plausible that, mm -hmm. that we would all come back here or just particular individuals do. The idea is really interesting because if we think of it that way, it's, it's kind of like the trauma that we experience in life that hasn't killed us, you know, to deal with it or we carry it if consciousness continues even beyond death. Well, that's right. And, and it would make you wonder, you know, being in psychiatry where we value sort of the unconscious, whether there are unconscious themes that would continue across lifetimes as well. That's kind of scary and frightening, too. <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, some of these children develop uh, phobias and unusual behaviors, right, that they may have carried from a past life. If it's if the children's, you know, relay really specific details that there could have been a past life, how do you treat them? Like if these phobias could be linked to the past or the unusual behaviors, like some of the kids exhibit addiction issues, right, early uh, well, that's right. Uh, and as far as phobias go, so with the unnatural death cases, over 35% of those uh, kids showed intense fear toward the mode of death. So again, with the drowning case, uh, there's a little um, girl where basically from the time she was born, she hated being in water. It would take three adults to hold her down to give her a bath when she was an infant. And then when she got old enough to talk, I uh, described the life of a girl in another village who, who drowned in an accident. Um, fortunately, those phobias often kind of recede. So with most of our cases, the memories start to fade by the time the, the kids are six or seven, five or six, seven. Um, and usually the behaviors will maybe not disappear, but will fade as well. Um, so as far as the addiction thing, uh, I mean, you're right. If the previous person was a heavy drinker mm -hmm. or smoker, then often the child will try to be smoking, I mean, sneaking cigarettes or even sometimes alcohol. And, um, but those behaviors don't necessarily persist either. So the, you know, as far as how you treat things, well, often you don't need to, just given it time and the child will get more wrapped up in the current life and, and let go of those kinds of patterns. Interesting. Why do you think uh, the memories fade around six or seven for these children if they remember so early on? Yeah, of course, they, a lot of it has to be so intense when they are remembering. But, you know, with, with all children, they lose their memories of early childhood around that age. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are say three-year-olds where they, with uh, friends of the family or grandparents or whoever, th they clearly know those people. They are in their long-term memories. But if something happens to the grandparent, for instance, if the grandparent dies, by the time the child is six or seven, they usually have no memory of them. So, you know, the brain is undergoing tremendous changes at that time. And it seems to be sort of the natural process uh, that those memories fade. So, you know, if a child has a memory of a past life, it would kind of make sense that those would fade just like with the early life. Mm -hmm. Now, there are exceptions, and especially if the two families, 
have met and established a relationship between the previous family and the current one, that will often keep the memories going longer. Uh, and again, it's kind of like with memories of early childhood. I mean, if they're constant reminders, then, then the memories persist more. It's interesting because I would imagine like when you're born, your consciousness is almost like uninhibited, you know, like a child is almost capable of or thinking anything, you know, while like as we grow older, we learn how to act in society and I would imagine our consciousness becomes more inhibited. Right. And, the you know, certainly young children can have a fantasy world in, in a way mm-hmm. that the rest of us do not. And, and of course, you know, people can wonder, well, are these past life memories fantasies also, which is why we always try to see if we can verify that the memories actually relate to someone in the past life. But, you know, as we get older, we become more of this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so less fantasy and less perhaps access to spiritual things or past life memories or whatever. And there's probably an evolutionary advantage to being able to focus on kind of the here and now and avoid potential dangers and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, um, um, again, it, there's there's a logic to why it, it happens the way it does. Yeah, and these children who remember past lives provide such detail that oftentimes you're able to find that previous life, right? Well, and that's think- right, and that's what we're always trying to do. I mean, yeah. if the if it, there, we have cases where the children are quite emotional describing a past life, but if they don't get the right kind of details, particularly names or places, then there's no way to verify whether those are actual memories or are they just fantasies on the part of the child. Yeah. Uh, but in most of our cases, in two-thirds of the ones we've investigated, uh, we have been able to, we or somebody, has been able to identify a previous person, a deceased individual whose life does match the details that the child has given. And I was really surprised because some of these um, statements are very specific, like knowing that the previous life had fed a snake milk daily or, you know, knowing that the previous father had a bad right eye or knowing that a previous life had a, they were living in a big house with a safe in the basement, you know, in the wall or knowing that her ashes were scattered and not buried like she had asked. It's amazing. Well, that's right. And of course, those are a lot of the the little details that kids will often give and that often stand up in our lives. But again, in all those cases, those details alone would not allow mm-hmm. anyone to verify that it, it there have to be other details on top of that that are identifying details. So yeah, yeah once we you know identify the, the previous person, then we can try to verify with family members or whoever that all those little things like feeding, having a pet snake that you feel, feed milk to and that kind of thing, <laughs> that in fact the previous person did do that. Yeah. Um, and some of them include, you know, some, some quite dramatic specific names uh, there's a well-known American case that, that's in my second book, James Leininger, where he remembered being a uh, pilot who was killed during World War II. And he named the aircraft carrier that he had been on, uh, gave the first and last name of, a, of another pilot on the ship, and also gave a lot of details of a crash. There was only one pilot who's, who could have fit the details that he gave, and, and they all matched up perfectly. So. 
uh, yeah, sometimes the, the specificity is quite remarkable. Yeah, and I remember reading uh, his book, or I guess his parents had written yeah. it. Yeah. When he was two, I think, when you could barely say anything in real life, he would have these nightmares where he would say, even though he couldn't speak in real life, he would say in his dreams, little man down, little man down. Yeah, he I, would say, um, uh, airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. And yeah, is, is this um, pilot uh, named James Houston who had um, his plane had crashed in the water and, and quickly sank? And and we know it had to be him partly because James also identified Iwo Jima where it took place, mm -hmm. uh, and the aircraft carrier he named uh, the Natoma. There was only one pilot from the ship that was killed during the Iwo Jima operation, and, and that was this James Houston. Amazing. You know, if some children confuse the past with the present, and some, as you say, describe in your book, saying, are saying to their parents, you are not my parents. My parents live somewhere else. How does that affect their present development? Well, that's a good question. Um, we have done psychological testing with some of them. And, and I mean, they have some of them have some issues with, with sort of anxiety or behavior. But in general, their development goes fine. Mm -hmm. uh, we're currently wrapping up the analysis of a study where we have interviewed adults who we originally studied when they were children to see how their development continued and, and how they did uh, as adults. And again, we're, we're still analyzing that. Um, but there can certainly, sometimes it's more traumatic, frankly, for the parents than for the children, um, partly because it's hard to see their children suffering with these memories, mm -hmm. but also because some of the children come close to rejecting their parents, or, or at least saying that they favor their other parents more. Um, and that can be quite difficult for the parents. Um, so there's a real emotional component, not just for the children, but for the parents as well. Um, but again, I mean, we reassure them that this does not last forever. And the, um, you know, the children certainly seem to be well bonded to, to their parents over time. I never thought of that aspect, how hard it must be for the parents, you know. Yeah. To and for see. some of them, it's also quite irritating because, <laughs> yeah. the, you know, the kids are saying every day, uh, my last house was much bigger than this one. And, you know, my last mom was much nicer than you are and that kind of thing. And it, it can wear on the parents. Definitely. Emotional for all parties involved. Yeah. Yep. From the cases in your book, it seems like those who are reincarnated or talk about their past lives are local. Like in the cases of the Burmese children who came to remember the lives of the Japanese soldiers who died in Burma, or the Sri Lankan and Indian children who had previously lived, I guess, miles away, do they tend to be more local? Uh, they do. I mean, local being sort of a relative term, but they, mm -hmm. they tend to be fairly nearby, almost use, uh, almost always the same nationality. You know, the, the Burmese kid, that would actually be an exception in that they say they remember Japanese soldiers, but they were ones who were killed in Burma uh, during World War II. So there was that kind of geographical connection. Um, some of that may be that, I mean, some of the kids have talked about um, other countries or seemingly describing other countries occasionally as young children, even saying, uh, seeming to talk in language that no one around them could understand. Mm -hmm. But those cases then become unverified and sort of unverifiable. Um, 
so it has to be details that can be verified. So typically it's easier if it's closer as opposed to halfway around the world. Um, but it may also be that to come back with intact memories that typically it would be fairly close by, be sort of a fairly similar life and it tends to be fairly quick too. So the, the average interval between lives is only four and a half years. Uh, now, there are exceptions to all of these. So James Leininger that I just mentioned. Um, the pilot child, Yeah, the, right? the yeah. pilot case. The, the, the families in Louisiana, the, the previous pilot uh, was from Pennsylvania and you know, died over the Pacific. So they, I mean, it's hundreds of miles mm -hmm. um, separating all those points. Uh, now, it's just, they're both Americans. Yeah. But they, uh, it doesn't have to be certainly within five or ten miles mm -hmm. or even you know 100 or 200 miles but it is is more likely to be nearby but it doesn't have to be in regards to like the burmese children who remembered the lives of the japanese soldiers who had died in burma were there like several cases all at one time of children remembering the lives of previous japanese soldiers then well i mean ian found them in a relatively mm -hmm. short period of time, but it's not like there was a cluster of them. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just, you know, needless to say, the occupation of, of Burma was kind of traumatic to the community. Mm -hmm. And um, so that there were a number, he found a couple of dozen cases mm -hmm. of these Burmese children that said they'd been Japanese soldiers. And, you know, it seems unlikely that anyone put them up to that because, I mean, the Japanese soldiers were not well liked in Burma. I mean, it obviously, it's a very difficult time. Um, so, um, it's not so, like one wants to be Japanese when there's been a lot of trouble or no, war. Well, that's right. Yeah. It would be like American kids, you know, who said they've been Nazis or you know, mm -hmm. whatever. There are plenty of uh, mm -hmm. analogies. Uh, it, it's not something that you would predict that either kids or their parents would want to have happen. Interesting. You know, I was kind of curious because, you know, um, for those children uh, who remember lives and remember lives of a member of the opposite sex, you talk about how, like, cross-gender behaviors have been observed. Like the case of Chloe, the boy Chloe Matwiset, who had the birthmark on his neck, and he had shown a number of uh, cross-gender behaviors. I guess he was thought to be his grandma in the previous life, and he had, you know, told his family that he wanted to be a girl or sitting on the toilet to urinate and repeatedly wearing his mom's like lipstick, uh, earrings or dresses, or the Burmese girl who reported memories of a Japanese soldier in Burma. And she had shown strong identification as a male when she was younger. I guess my question is when the memories dissipate, do the cross-gender behaviors dissipate as well? Um, sometimes yes and sometimes no. And, mm -hmm. you know, since I, that first book I read in 2005 and, and we've, um, we've learned a lot about gender issues since then. Um, I mean, in, in general uh, mental health and uh, well, in cold, general culture, but, uh, we recently did an analysis. So in cases where the, um, child remembers a past life as a member of the opposite sex or a, a different sex, uh, then a lot of them sh will show gender nonconformity. So in the general population, about 3% of boys and 5% of girls uh, will show gender nonconformity. 
when our cases where the child reports a past life as a member of a different sex, 80% of those children showed gender nonconformity mm-hmm. uh, compared to only 5% of, of the others. So there certainly seems to be kind of a connection there. Um, following those anecdotally, uh, Ian Stevenson followed some of those into adulthood. And sometimes the, uh, those, that gender nonconformity would fade um, just like it does in other kids. And then sometimes it would persist again, like in some kids. So there was one case where um, the girl in Burma um, would refuse to wear female clothes to the point that she got expelled from school um, oh, wow. when she was 11 or 12, <laughs> 10 or 11. Um, and again, anecdotally, he would see some adults where it was completely a thing of the past and and then others were they they seem to have stayed uh, stuck with their uh, gender identity that they had when they were children mm-hmm. i guess you know my question is regarding that child who who was a boy you know and he was thought to be his grandma with the details that he provided um in his past life do you think family expectations of like knowing that he described you know he described details from of his grandmother maybe could have affected him as well or yeah it was an interesting question we actually pu- published his case as a case report in in the um uh, a journal focused on issues of sexuality um <clears throat> because yes even at birth he was thought to be his grandmother reborn because he had a birthmark on the back of his neck that matched where her body had been marked um but when you look at, at sort of um, explanations of gender identity or, or gender dysphoria, you know, it's thought to be sort of a multifactorial kind of thing. Uh, and it's not clear that family expectations necessarily are, are a particular predominant factor in, in producing gender nonconformity or, in, in his case, gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a good question. Um, but there's... There's a logic to it, but there's not a whole lot of evidence to to think that that would happen. Mm-hmm. I was just curious because you had mentioned um, the James uh, case of that child who, you know, indicated that in the past life he was a pilot. You know, in World War Two, I believe. Um, you know, I, I saw you. I first found out about you watching the Netflix special "Surviving Death," and there were two cases that were presented. I guess on episode two. But um, regarding the adult children who have brief memories now of past lives, they were still so emotional talking about their past lives. Well, that's right. And it's, you know, the the memories typically fade, but don't necessarily disappear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, as as James Langer talked about on on the, uh, the Netflix series, about the only thing he remembers now is just the the dread of being the pilot whose plane is going down, knowing he's going to be killed. Um, so I um, I asked him if he had any memory still of what happened next, of you know, mm-hmm. his spirit floating up or you know, having it like a positive near death experience, and he said no, unfortunately. I mean, so it's so it's. Um, Unfortunately, it is that the most traumatic memory is the one that he still has. You know, if if he's remembering like the feelings, I guess, of that past life and not the specific details anymore as an adult, 
I would imagine it's still important to address that trauma, right? Even if it's from a past life. Well, it certainly could be. Um, I mean, I haven't done a detailed interview mm -hmm. with him about how much it affects his life and you know how prominent it is. But yeah, I mean, you could certainly treat that just as you would with any PTSD kind of uh, um, symptoms. And, and I will say, even when he was little, he showed more of those sorts of symptoms than many of the kids do. So, you know, we, we were talking earlier, he would have these horrific nightmares of the plane crash. Mm -hmm. He'd have them multiple times a week. And wow. um, not just his parents, I also talked with his aunt who spent a lot of time with the family. And she said, you couldn't believe how terrible these things were to witness, that it really looked mm -hmm. like somebody fighting for his life. Like he was literally yelling and screaming then. Kicking his legs up in the air, screaming. Mm -hmm. And then during the day, he would take his little toy airplanes and say, airplane crash on fire and slam them into the coffee table over and over again. I mean, they have a picture of their coffee table. There are dozens of scratches and dents. Mm -hmm. So this kind of repetitive reliving the trauma, what we in children's mental health referred to as post-traumatic play, it looked like he was doing that. So it, he really looked like a traumatized child. Um, but of course, he hadn't been traumatized in, in this life, at least. Um, <clears throat> and so he showed that more than, than many of the ch children do. So I guess it kind of makes sense that even now, as a young adult, that he would still carry more of that kind of trauma with him than some of the others do. Yeah, because even in terms of like early brain development, if one has trauma like that, even if it didn't happen in this life, but he's still carrying it, I can't imagine how that would affect brain development, you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, just like, you know, we know that trauma during early childhood, um, the profound effects it can have on development. Uh, now, again, for the most part, these kids seem to develop just fine. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing we found with psychological testing when they were children is that the one thing that stood out the most actually is that they tend to be very intelligent and very verbal. And it may well be that being intelligent and verbal makes it more likely for them to be able to tell about these memories. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps being able to uh, tell about them kind of crystallizes the memories in their minds more and, and leads to kind of a full case. Uh, it may be that there are other children who have some of these images, but without the verbal skills, that the images kind of fade by the time that they get really good at talking. Yeah, because some of the cases that you describe, I think they were talking as early as like 14 months, like describing, you know? Well, that's right. And, and like there was the case, uh, a boy when he was 18 months old, uh, as his dad was changing his diaper one day, looked up at him and said, when I was your age, I used to change your diapers. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, which seems almost hard to believe. And, and yet again, when we've done the testing, we see that in fact, uh, many of these children are are quite smart mm -hmm. and quite verbal at an early age. Do you think, Dr. Tucker, like even for those who don't remember past lives, could some of the anxiety or emotions that we feel, you know, in this life, do you feel like it could be related to perhaps past lives or past trauma as well? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, Ian Stevenson posited that along with genetics and environment that past lives were a third factor that could affect personality development. Um, now with anxiety, obviously we know there's a 
strong genetic component. And obviously we know that environmental issues can, can cause it too. You know, if you're looking at unexplained phobias, for instance, I mean, then you really have to wonder, is there some sort of unconscious past life memory that's driving that? Uh, I think in general, I mean, anxiety, of course, is extremely prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, and we often don't really know what the causes are. So it, it would be the same here. I, I would not be one who would automatically assume that it was uh, an anxiety symptoms from a past life, but it's certainly worth considering. Interesting. You know, I was also like, I think all of the stories that you presented were really remarkable. But I think what I found most shocking were the stories of the children remembering being in utero in someone else's tummy, you know, Um, but not being born. And they were able to verify these details that, you know, that the child had provided. Well, that's right. There, There are a lot of the kids will describe sort of memories between lives. Um, it's about 20% who do. And, and for some of those, it's right after the previous person died. They may have sort of hung out with the previous family or they'll describe the funeral. Some talk about going to another realm uh, like heaven. In fact, the American kids may use the word heaven. But some will talk about either being guided to their next parents or, like you say, actually being in utero usually not where they're describing what the um, womb environment was like, but more of observing their parents and the things that they would be doing. So there you have it. But yes, there there are um, a significant number of kids, not all of them recall past lives, but there's a significant number of kids who will talk Mm -hmm. about uh, kind of prenatal memories. Interesting. A lot of the studies that you mentioned, like abroad, you know, it's reincarnation is more accepted. While in the U.S., it's not really part of our culture, although there are some that believe. How are the American cases that contact you, are they different from the cases from abroad? Not much. Now, most of the parents say they did not believe in reincarnation before their kids started talking about a past life. Um, but of course, we only hear from the ones where they were at least open enough to it where they would contact us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the features are the same. I mean, it's a very young child who talks about memories of a life that often ended suddenly or violently. Uh, the kids show the same kinds of behaviors, the phobias and that sort of thing. We have had American birthmark cases. Um, and then again, most of them then let the stuff go and, and then just go on with their lives. So it seems to be the same phenomenon, uh, regardless of what culture that the child is in. Mm-hmm. Are their parents more resistant to accepting it, the details that their child provides? Uh, yes, they often are. So, mm-hmm. I mean, even in the other places that the parents often discourage the children from talking about a past life, partly because um, in some places it's thought that a child will have a short life if uh, he or she talks about the past life. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, in, say, in, in India, for example, where I think about 35% of parents try to suppress their children from talking about the past life, uh, they do believe the children. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it may be validating even if they're trying to get the children to shut up. Uh, whereas in, in the U.S., you know, many of the parents often ignore what the children say or discount it, just tell them you have to quit fibbing or 
in make-believe or whatever. Um, and that may well lead some children to stop, um, but you know, for many of them, they do not. The, the, the ones in India where the parents try to suppress the children, that doesn't make any difference. Um, but if it's where the parents are just completely disbelieving, perhaps that gets some children to keep it to themselves more. And I kind of wonder, like, suppression of anything doesn't seem like a good thing either. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, parents obviously have to yeah. set limits. It's scary. And, and, um, it could be scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's right. And, and again, sometimes it can be irritating as well. But, yeah. but again, there is this belief in, in some of those cultures that it's bad to talk about a past life, that it may cause you to get sick or even die. So that it may well be that parents are trying to suppress looking out for the children. Yeah, and you mentioned like other cultures are concerned that if you talk about a past life that their lives are shorter, are they? Not that we can tell. <laughs> um, needless to say, we haven't done controlled studies, but we, yeah. um, I mean, as far as we can tell, if, if you look at, the, we have one of our colleagues did go both Lebanon and Sri Lanka and interview adults that had been um, studied as children, and they seemed essentially uh, undistinguishable from other people. They, they, if anything, they might have been doing a little better uh, mm -hmm. than you might expect from the general population. But it's certainly not like he did not discover that a lot of them had died, um, and you know their physical health was fine and and their functioning was fine. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that in general. It seems like they do better. It's really early on. It's a lot of things to work out really early on and be honest about. Uh, that's true. But again, they tend to be intelligent. So, of course, yeah. that may be a plus. Um, and, you know, it may well, you're right that, that there are things to work through. But, you know, if you look at resilience, I mean, you, you in general, it's best that kids, that they aren't raised with no stress because then they don't develop ways of handling, but it needs to be manageable stress. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and maybe this is the kind of stressor that with their parents' help, that they are able to manage it and may even bring them closer to their parents. Uh, so maybe it's helpful down the road. I think that's really interesting because these children provide incredible detail. And, you know, a lot of these parents or family members wrote them down before, I guess, even before you were able to find them or contact them or they contacted you. But I think to be able to understand or, or listen to your child and you know, listen to what they say. I think it's, it, I could see how it could definitely strengthen a family too with things that they may not want to really deal with, but they listen to. <laughs> well, that's right. Because, I mean, again, as parents, you know, you want to comfort your child. And, and when the child is crying every day about a past life, that draws you to the child. And it's something that the two of you can work through together. Yeah. You know, I know you um, You mentioned life between lives, and I realize this is pure speculation, but hearing children talk like this, do you wonder if there is life beyond our current lives or perhaps the world, the world around us is not what we think it is? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I think if, if you're open to the idea that consciousness can carry on after the physical brain dies, you know, suggest really that there's more than just the physical reality. And, you know, I, I do think that 
ultimately consciousness is what is primary in reality mm -hmm. and the physical world grows out of it and, and I mean there have been plenty of people before me that have essentially said the same thing uh, so it does make you wonder you know we only have access or most of us only have access to this one physical reality um, but there may be an infinite number of um, other kinds of existence that, that we can't even fathom uh, so I, I do think this phenomenon is is part of kind of the overall picture that that points toward that. And I think your work is very interesting because you are stating, you know, like the the you're stating what people are telling you what is happening in their lives or the their truth, you know. You're presenting the their facts. And I think, you know, when you when one talks about consciousness, there's so many other words that we could also use too, like maybe energy or, you know, our essence. We never know it, I think. Yeah, of course, in religious terms, people would talk about a soul or a spirit. And those aren't terms we use just because they have connotations that we don't necessarily you know, assume. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, they're all different words, that, and, and there's not necessarily a perfect word, but mm -hmm. that describes that there's more to us than just our physical body, our physical existence, but there is this kind of greater part uh, that, that perhaps does continue on after we die. Mm -hmm. And I think as along with the idea is, you know, with the idea that there could be the unlimited, I think perhaps sometimes in life when we don't understand, I think we, we make our own limitations. Well, that's right. And, and um, you know, life is complicated. And <laughs> uh, the we all can get caught up in the day-to-day -day stuff and, and the limitations and kind of lose sight of kind of the bigger picture. And you know, the, these kids kind of remind us uh, that there may well be this bigger picture, that there's so much more that, that we don't know about and often don't think about because we're getting too caught up in, in the various limitations of the day. Interesting. You know, in Life Between Lies, when the children were describing that, is it more idle or, you know, like some of the children talk about hiding behind a tree, looking at their family or yeah, what is well, your experience? It, it really varies. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, there's one kid who talked about sitting up in a tree for seven years. Um, but there are others who are describing different kinds of experiences, not necessarily positive ones, but different things that they have gone through after they died. Some of them, to be perfectly honest, seem rather fantastical, uh, you know, cities of gold or whatever. Um, I think we're just getting glimpses of that mm -hmm. and glimpses through the perspective of a three or four year old, four or five year old talking about these things. So, uh, um, but it does seem to involve a series of events that it's not just kind of nothingness is not just existence, but it's actually events as far as we can tell, uh, but before the children are born again. Interesting. Dr. Tucker, I find your work so fascinating and I think it takes tremendous courage to do what you're doing. You know, when in our medical field, there's so many poo-pooers, you know, if they don't, if they can't understand sometimes, you know, when it's defied, it's denied, it causes blocks. What would you like to tell our audience to help further understand your your work and the you know the importance of it? Well, I think 
if nothing else, is serious-minded work. I mean, we, you know, I'm I'm still an actively practicing child psychiatrist. I, I spend a lot of time at the UVA clinic, either seeing patients or, or supervising mm-hmm. uh, trainees, learning how to treat patients. Um, so we're not just a bunch of kooks, so, but we're open to this idea that children may have these memories that that seem anomalous. And um, I would encourage people to look at the evidence for themselves and you know then they can decide what to make of it but i I think just rejecting it out of hand is is really not very scientific i think so and sometimes it's as simple as just listening to the things that people say around you because i think a lot of times we block it ourselves but if you listen it's things that we can't fathom are there (laughs) Well, that's right. And listening to other people, you know, these days has become kind of an endangered activity because everyone seems so um, sure of their opinions and, and mm-hmm. you know, happy to go online, and go on Twitter or whatever and, and share their opinions without necessarily listening to what other people have to say. Uh, in this case, listening to what young children have to say, uh, I think, can be important. How wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tucker. It was a very enjoyable and interesting conversation. Well, thanks very much for having me. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Are you looking for a unique perspective to help you gain insight into your health and well-being? Schedule a virtual wellness visit with Dr. Michelle Choi by going to our website, drlostorfound.com to schedule an appointment. Please subscribe and follow Dr. Michelle Choi on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.